Welcome back to Is It Horror? I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. And I'm Steve. Uh, For those of you who haven't been here for our first episode, general idea of the podcast is that we will take a movie and potentially eventually a book, video game, album, TV show, and we will debate whether or not it should be considered horror. And part of the reason for that is it might seem like an easy quick definition to figure out if something's horror, but uh, it gets a little bit more complicated the more you start analyzing it. And so we figured that we would put together this podcast to take a look at various forms of media and try and get a better definition of what makes something horror by uh, analyzing what we've got so far. So for this episode, we are going to be talking about the 1997 movie Event Horizon. Uh, Just a brief description for those who haven't seen it. The film involves a salvage crew, or uh, I guess uh, an aid crew. What would you say? Uh, Uh, Search and rescue crew. That makes more sense. (laughs) (laughs) So search and rescue crew. Um, They pilot the Lewis and Clark, and they receive a signal from a ship called the Event Horizon, which disappeared seven years ago after its maiden voyage and it's kind of been kept secret why it disappeared and what the purpose of the ship was and so kind of what you find out is that uh, the ship itself has a drive that creates a dimensional gateway and that this ship has literally traveled to hell and back and uh the crew, they figured this out too late as they are on the ship with the guy that made the ship. And uh, funky things start happening. It gets weird. It gets a bit hellraisery. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so there's that as far as the general description of it. Uh, spoilers, obviously, already, if you haven't seen it. I'm leaving out lots of details, but we will be discussing them further. Um, I guess to just go into a little bit of the history of this film, it was released back in August of 1997. Uh, Paramount was the one that released it. At the time, they were trying to basically put out a movie that was going to do well while they were still waiting to release Titanic later that September. And so they got Paul S. Anderson, Paul S. W. Anderson, I should say, to... uh, go ahead and develop and direct this film. And uh, he, you might recognize from other movies such as Mortal Kombat and uh, the Resident Evil series. Uh, He really hadn't, he'd done Mortal Kombat and a movie called Shopping, which I had never really heard of before Event Horizon. Uh, Have either of you seen Mortal Kombat? No. Oh, a million years ago, yes. Yeah, Uh it's... It's not great. I think it's something of a cult classic these days, but... Absolutely a camp cult classic. I didn't realize it was uh, Paul W.S. Anderson who had directed this before watching it this last time. And then watching through it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely the guy who did Resident Evil movies. <laughs> <laughs> and like, there was some of the like campy weirdness that... Like, I think is not great as far as quality goes in the Resident Evil movies that kind of translated over to these, but they're still like fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's 
it's kind of weird because at least as far as uh and we'll get into this in a sec but as far as resident evil versus event horizon i feel like there's maybe more going on under the hood in event horizon but maybe i'm giving it too much credit but we'll we'll talk about that in just a moment but uh yeah so he goes and he puts this movie together for paramount pictures and his rough cut was about two hours and ten minutes and they kind of wanted something that was going to be like a summer blockbuster to sort of tide them over and uh, they looked at some of the dailies while they were making the film, but they hadn't seen any of the gore effects yet. Mm-hmm. And so finally he presents them the film as like, okay, here's the rough cut of it. And they watch it and they're like, hell no, hell no, we're not releasing this thing. Like that is a hard pass. That's an that's an A. <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to make us any money. It's just, yeah. So they're like, you've got to cut this thing down. So it went from two hours and 10 minutes to... 96 minutes, which an hour and a half is pretty common for horror movies. No, I think that one of the most tantalizing things about this film and one of the reasons I liked it so much was because they had to cut it down just to release it. So it had that weird appeal of like, do you remember like when NC-17 was a big deal in the 90s? Like that rating meant something? Like I I feel like it harkens back to that sort of oomph that these types of movies that were sensationalized used to have. I don't know. Um, but other interesting tidbit that I found out as I kind of scrolled through the interwebs and such, um, apparently that cut footage is, is no longer in existence. Is the Yeah. Myth. So um, I guess I have a little extra to go along with that too. Uh, recently, so there's this company, Shout Factory. They like to do these special collector's editions of movies and release uh, Blu-rays and DVDs of them. Well, Blu-rays mm-hmm. now. I'm sure they don't mm-hmm. do DVDs anymore. But they were doing a special edition of Event Horizon. It's the copy that I ended up actually buying. And I guess they dug deep and searched the earth for this extra footage so that they could put together an extended cut. But they... Which I would yeah. like, I would probably die twice to get, if I'm being honest. Right? <laughs> yeah. I would like to see that movie. And, and they just... <laughs> They couldn't find it, so it is what it is. And I guess uh, Paul S. W. Anderson, his or Paul W. S. Anderson. I'm gonna go ahead and reverse that like 50 times during the course of this podcast, so you can. Just- I think you should keep it in, and then at the very end, say his name correctly and be like, "Hey, if you are listening to this, please send us that shit. Thanks." I'm <laughs> sorry, but if you have that extended cut, do you got any of that extended cut? <laughs> How about a little bit of that stuff? okay well before we start really diving into the meat of it um let's let's go through what's everybody's impression what did you think before watching it what did you think after watching it i went into this saying it was horror i watched it twice and said hmm maybe it is not horror maybe it is science fiction so then i watched it again and decided that it is definitely for sure horror it was it was a close it was a close almost a close tie but it's definitely horror. You are far more prepared than I am. You watched it three I'm times. I'm not. That's awesome. Do you, no. Do you want to know what? Okay. Now let me clarify what watching a movie three times means at age 38, sweetie. Will do. Watching a movie three times at my age after working and being uh, trying to be a normal human worm baby is I get through like 45 to maybe 60 minutes of a movie and then I pass out just dead to the world, exhausted, asleep on my couch. So it takes me three times to actually see the full movie. So please don't give me too much credit. (laughs) (laughs) 
I've I've definitely been there. I get that yeah. entirely. Yeah. yeah, that's that's where I'm at. <laughs> okay, so you uh, so you went in thinking horror. You came out not so sure. I had an almost come to Jesus moment on on the science fiction train with that, but no, it is super duper horror for uh, lots of different rando points that I will be happy to clarify as we come across them. Uh, I uh, yeah, I definitely went in thinking it was horror, and I definitely came back out the other side thinking it was still horror. So zero yeah. deviation. Yeah, for me it was. I I didn't. I it was pretty solid for me all the way through. Yeah, I I entered into the black hole feeling that it was horror <laughs> and I came out the other side having seen wonderful things and still feeling like it was horror. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's where I ended up on well, all of that. Well, this is going to be a really one-sided argument. Oh, I'm going to try to argue sci-fi, but it's not going to work. <laughs> and that's okay cuz I think that there are probably some people out there saying, why are you doing a podcast called Is It Horror? And you're watching a movie that everyone is pretty sure, pretty sure <laughs> is, is horror. indeed horror. <laughs> and there is a reason. And here's the reason is that last time we did a movie that we weren't sure on. And uh, we did another ill-fated attempt on a movie that almost no one considers horror. At some point we might re-record. <laughs> you might have heard us refer to the ill-fated Hot Fuzz recording. Someday we'll oh, get back boy. to it. It's like the lost episode. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the fo- it's like the footage that you can't find from Event Horizon anymore. It's, yes. it's the performance that happens before the band has a garage. That's what it is. Exactly. So what I was thinking, though, is that it would be good to do a movie that we are pretty sure is horror because then we can at least analyze some of the elements that we're looking at while we're watching it and saying, okay, it's these things make me sure that it's horror. And I think that that's worth exploring. And then we can, you know, go back because we have the next episode that we're going to do is something that uh, I think most people are a little more on the fence about. Yeah. I would say first and foremost would be the focus on gore. There was, shock value to be had left and right there were jump scares left and right there was an overall sense of foreboding and i thought a pretty amazing aesthetic that was consistent with costuming set design even like the 1997 special effects it worked for me on that level just as a whole but it was meant to horrify you it was meant to scare you it was meant to put some sort of fear into you uh what we're supposed to fear, we can certainly discuss further. But for me, that bar none was what made it horror at the end of the day. Yeah, I uh, I definitely agree with all of those things. Um, I thought the atmosphere was extremely horror-oriented, and the jarring gore in places was very horror-esque. And then you have moments like where the the unsettling moment where the, I forget the character's name now, the kind of, I think she's the doctor lady who like finds her son in the like little tent thing on the examining table and like sees the like hand running across the tent and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Peters. I had to look it up. Peters. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Peters. Which that should be emblazoned in my memory from Dawn of the Dead and numerous times of quoting (laughs) Peter. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, that's fine. But yes, continue. Oh, yeah. And then, um, I don't know, there's 
a couple of kind of odd things. Like I, I wrote down in my notes that like the opening music made me feel like it was like it was men in black music. <laughs> like, right. like it mm-hmm. was a little too upbeat for what I thought it should be. I don't know. It was uh, very Happy Star Voyage, whatever that is. Whatever that brand of music is, it was Happy Star Voyage. uh Uh-huh, yeah. It's like filtering the intro music of Alien through the 90s. Yeah, that's Yeah, that makes sense. That's accurate. (laughs) The other thing about the movie that I I think it probably suffered from being cut down so much, Mm -hmm. I uh, felt like... uh, they had to kind of manufacture the tension, at least on the front half of the movie. Like you have that whole moment where the Lewis and Clark is coming up on the event horizon and they're like, it's getting closer. It's 500 meters away. Let's keep like ramming speed forward. (laughs) It's 400 meters away. Where is it? I can't see it. Like, I don't know. It's just like 2047. (laughs) No one can find the break. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It just, Felt like a whole like manufactured drama moment that I I don't know I don't feel like needed to be there and maybe it would have been better to have a longer movie that like lets you kind of slow burn the tension up to it. I'll give you that. I feel like it went to the cutting room floor and they picked it back up because they had to cut other stuff. Yeah, and I think the other thing too, I guess that I think about it is uh, it is a very gory movie and that. Definitely, I think it doesn't automatically have to put something in the horror category because there's definitely films that, you know, gore is played for laughs occasionally. But yeah, like they're trying to shock you with the gore, trying to rattle you with it. But yeah, going along with the idea of how much it was cut down, despite it being known for being a gory movie, I can't help but wonder if there's maybe a more thoughtful psychological thriller somewhere laying on the cutting room floor, somewhere molding that, because uh, it does spend a lot of time with each of those characters that are the main characters. But yeah, like you say, you don't really get some of the backstory there for, you see some of what's going on in Peter's head, but um, the doctor... Clearly, there are some things going on with him, and you don't get any of that. And I have to assume that their pilot was also having issues, but you don't really get anything from him, even hints of anything, really. And I just, I would like to see what was going on in the background for some of these people in that longer cut that exists somewhere. Yeah, for sure. So what were to either of you i guess this is a question do you think that there were any characters that were particularly fleshed out who did not suffer from that ultimate cut that happened and if so who and why well i think that at least for me they they spent plenty of time with captain miller lawrence fishburne's character and they spent plenty of time with weir samuel neal's character mm-hmm. so i think those characters still, you know, got their due. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that everybody else was kind of there, but they didn't really spend as much time with any of them. I think you get a little bit of, I, I think it was interesting getting Peter's story, but it's kind of strange at the same time because she never felt like a main character to me. No. Yeah, but like, like her uh, trauma is some of the like, some of the bigger moments like dealing with finding her kid and then like trying to find having the illusion of her kid later on 
and chasing chasing that down and I don't know you get a lot more with her than you do with some of the other characters that is true yeah. but that's because she is a mother character you think that uh, that automatically would mean that she gets more screen time I guess elaborate on that I'd like to hear more yeah okay so because I'm female, I always take a look and often judge harshly on a film's female characters because everybody wants to see like their idealized self on a screen, right? In some character relation universe. So, sure. Um, my theory is is that with horror genres specifically, um, probably, I don't know if there's such a thing as feminist horror. That's like a whole other episode. But I think that there, there definitely is. And so... Oh, we need to talk about that. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> okay. I generally find that in what I would call classic or classic mimicking horror movies, there are three types of female characters. There is the virgin, who usually survives if we're talking like a Halloween-esque universe. Um, or, you know, if you want to put that on its head, we can talk about Scream. But then there's also the mother figure, who is usually either benign and often gets killed off first. Um, and then there's always the whore who, you know, often gets killed or meets a, you know, spooky, weird, bizarre fate or is just there to serve as like eye candy for the viewers, like whatever it is. And we have all three of those characters in Event Horizon, I think. Yeah, I would say I, I would agree with that because then you get uh, Stark's character who she's definitely more like filling into the virginal final girl role. And right. I guess at least as far as that for me, I'm seeing that because they specifically hold, you know, make a thing of Cooper hitting on her. And it's a throwaway right. joke, but it's sort of almost a nod to the trope of it to the fans to be like, this is who this character is in that yeah. aesthetic. I guess yeah. the mother part of it is one that I hadn't necessarily thought of, but that does make sense. And then I assume that you're casting uh, Weir's wife in the the horror role, basically, of those. Absolutely. Quote, 100%. I feel like that's who she represents for the film's purpose anyway. Especially with her, uh, I don't know, sort of being, I mean, whether or not it's somehow her or not, or just an illusion in Sam Neill's head, I suppose that's debatable, but she's at least representing the hell dimension in that way. She's also the only female character who's immediately presented in a sexual manner and maintains that throughout the movie. She, her character is topless a lot of the time, not only to represent the hell dimension, but also to literally titillate the audience. Yeah, that makes sense. I was just going to say, I, that, I guess that was kind of leads into my question. I guess, does, does the fact that, you know, she's the one who the nudity gets focused on make her the whore automatically, even though, like, it's not, I mean, it, it, it is sexual for sure, but like, it's not like there's sex happening with her character really correct but it was 1997 and if you saw a nipple oh hey right yeah that that makes sense yeah <laughs> at, at the heart of it this movie is a haunted house movie i would say i mean it's a spaceship mind you so it's not exactly but then it sort of leans a little bit into slasher territory with sam neill's character and kind of where he ends up and it's pretty much a staple, at least of 80s slasher films, that there's going to be boobies. <laughs> this is That's true. sort of a this promise that you're making to the audience. This is a slasher movie. People are going to get killed. But also, don't worry, there will be some boobies to take the edge off. Even if it doesn't make sense why they're there. I feel like that's canon. Is that officially in the Is It Horror handbook? 
I mean, it should be for 80s horror and 80s slashers specifically. It's just, I don't know. It's like a contract that you tacitly have with your audience when making a slasher movie during the 80s. And Scream changed all that, mind you, but. I feel like we need to draft this contract. Put it together and be like, here's what you can expect. Here's what what you can expect when you watch a true 80s horror film. See? Yeah, we got this. Even, even though this is the 90s, but obviously he was channeling <laughs> Whatever. some of those vibes. <laughs> and I know it's like we're talking about this, but then at the same time, like we're also talking about the whole concept of maybe there's more going on under the hood of this movie. And I think there is for the record. At least for me, I think part of the thing that's going on under the hood, too, is I feel like there's I mean, obviously, there's the hell dimension. So that's the more overt part of it. But there's definitely religious connotations all over the place within this film. Heavy, heavy religious connotation. They could have chosen any language to have them speaking, but they're bringing up Latin, which, you know, always within Christian religions, Latin's always a big deal. And then you've got the one character who's, you know, prominently wearing a cross around, and they're talking about violating the rules of the universe by going faster than light. And it's like this whole thing, oh, you've broken the laws. And so this is what you get. This is your punishment is that you get a hellish ship that shows you boobies. (laughs) It's not all bad then. They lure you in with boobies. It's true. The darks (laughs) come to the dark side. They have boobies. Count me in. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's, it's got that element of it too, right? Like that's what you get from all of the, And basically, urban legends, a lot of the best urban legends, you had a friend that told you this. They're all these little things of like, you better act right or this terrible thing will happen. Like, uh, you weren't watching the kids, so there's a killer upstairs. Or uh, you did drugs, so you put the baby in the oven instead of the turkey and that kind of thing. And this movie has that sort of vibe to it a little bit, too, where it's sort of... I know it's kind of not maybe there right on the surface, or maybe it is and we're just being, I don't know, patting ourselves on the back too much, but... (laughs) <laughs> I, I think that, that that element is there, right? It's saying you shouldn't have gone outside of the confines of the laws of the universe and now you have to pay. Yeah, I think it's a standing warning to stay in, in your metaphysical lane a lot and stop bending space-time things. But do you think it's an anti-science movie? Like, is that the warning? Like, oh, we shouldn't be going to the moon because I think in 2047 in the the movie setting, like there's already a colony on the moon. Like we're really pushing our boundaries, like even for that time in terms of imagining what it could be. I guess I would lean towards no, not exactly anti-science. Just, and maybe this is me being too surface level with it, but the fact that it does involve space travel, that it is there in the future, that they're obviously they've had these technological advancements. I don't feel like it's necessarily trying to demonize all of those things. So I could see that argument and I won't discount it, but I don't think that I would make that argument myself. I mean, we could go to a classical Greek argument and say that this is literally just punishment for hubris, the entire thing. And that's oh, the last yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, if we want to get really, really basic. I mean, probably just because, uh, you know, it's Lawrence Fishburne, but I keep thinking of random Matrix things along with this, but like, right. It's one of those, I kept like, hoping he was going to put on the glasses. It never happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, side note, like, I think that this was Lawrence Fis- Fishburne's audition for being the captain of the Nebuchadnezzar. Was it really? 
Oh. Well, I don't know, but I that's what I thought while I was watching it. Like he's like, you know, the captain of this spaceship and he's floating around on his weird floaty chair and he's got this crew and I don't know. Being a hardcore okay. captain, like can we talk about those chairs though? Those freaking chairs. Those were <laughs> those were the jankiest gaming chairs I've ever seen in my life, y'all. <laughs> yeah. That was some ratchet duct tape egg <laughs> egg crate foam shit. What was that? Well, come on. I know it was ninety seven, but come on. That's why I'm sure it's horror, because only in a <laughs> horror movie would you force people to sit in that chair and call it technology advancing. <laughs> Oh, can we please talk about what in 1997, 2047 was dreamed to be? Can we talk about how you could still smoke on a fucking space station? Yeah. I, yeah, like, that would ever really work. Oh my god, it was too much. And uh, I liked the, uh, like, the real photos, like the real Polaroids that were still hanging over the bunk bed. I loved that. Yeah, and the, they had... He had his porno picture, clearly from a magazine that he put on the wall. Like, you don't have a tablet anymore. You have to tack those up. And in that way, it's very very much looking like alien cassette futurism. So I don't know if that was just (laughs) a lack of forethought on their part or if they were really just riffing off of what had come before. But yeah, it definitely has that kind of sense. Because, I mean, you go to Alien, too, and like... That's uh, true. They had... The porno pictures tacked up on their walls too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. almost like shot for shot that like scene of like the bunk with the like porno picture. Per- yes, that porno was pictures very reminiscent. Yeah, <laughs> we're all at a round table. Let me tell you why yeah. I've woken you up. Here's what's yeah. going on. You better get with the program. Yeah. <laughs> but why exactly does Doctor Weir right? It's Doctor Weir. I believe Whatever. that he is, I believe I he went like to evil medical a, school. <laughs> he definitely went to evil medical school and possibly graduated. But um, I thought I found it humorous that his character has to explain in depth to a crew who flies a freaking oh, yeah. spaceship how his magical scientific thing works. Like, I don't know. I felt like that was a little patronizing for the crew of the Lewis and Clark discern. Yeah. So exposition-y. <laughs> like, I was waiting. Fold space. I'm like, you're telling right. me these people that live on a spaceship, none of them have read Dune? Because they've been talking about folding <laughs> space since the 60s, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that whole thing was weird to me. <laughs> I feel like it it would have been a. Pr- I want to see the cut where someone just like stops him, like face palms him, and is just like, bro, we get it. We fly spaceships and just rattles off in two sentences everything we need to all know as an audience. And it's done. Yeah, that could have been presented in a way that made more sense. I felt like it was weird, too, because like the crew was all like, oh, that's yeah, I don't get it. That's weird. That's impossible. But then they're just like, OK, yep, that's how it worked. And I don't know. <laughs> Suspension yeah, of belief. Ta-da. <laughs> yeah. Raging against the machine, but two minutes later they're like, "Okay, fine." Yeah. Also, I mean, if we're if we're treating this as a comedic movie, I mean, we can look at this from the standpoint that this whole thing happened. The moral of the story is don't take overtime because aren't isn't every single one of these people like suppo- not supposed to be going out on another mission? Yeah, they were all supposed to have, well, Peter's specifically, they have a whole line where uh, they were supposed to have leave for her, but they didn't 
they needed to go immediately, so she didn't get that. We watched one of the like special feature things, and then they were supposed, I think in the original cut, they were supposed to have just gotten off of a different mission. And the like scene where uh, the captain, where Lawrence Fishburne saves Teddy Bear Guy flying out of the airlock, that was originally supposed to be from the opening scene of the movie and oh them saving some other random guy. Yeah, but oh, then no. they got over budget, so they didn't film it, and they just kind of <laughs> stole pieces exactly. from it for later sections. Baby bear, not teddy bear. I don't know. I think that might be my favorite scene, though. When he goes spinning out of the airlock? Yeah, the airlock. I remember, well, I don't, how old was I in 97? I don't know, Steve, math for me. <laughs> 11? <laughs> sure. So, so I probably saw this when I was 13 or 14, because I definitely saw it on... It was on VHS. I rented it because I walked to the video store that was in town down the street, which was a no-name brand. It wasn't even like a Blockbuster or Hollywood. And I watched Event Horizon. So at like 13 or 14, and that scene really freaked me out a lot. Like the, the special effects got me, the whole the whole eyes getting exploded. Yeah. It was a good scene. It was really good. That uh, that section in the trailer probably sold me on going to see that movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, I yeah, I definitely saw that one in the theater, and I probably went with anyway, a mutual friend of ours that I probably went with was Will. Oh, shut the front door! Oh, Will, <laughs> if you're listening, oh that anarchy lighter man, I still would have stole it. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, some deep cut references for people listening that you'll never get, and that's fine. <laughs> oh, man. We have either. our own backstory as to how we like even got involved into horror fanship or fandom or whatever. <laughs> so I guess to dive a little deeper into it, we've got gore. Does gore in a movie necessarily make it horror? What are your opinions? Gore for the sake of gore makes it horror. Gore for the sake of realism does not. For example, Braveheart, not horror. That head squishing scene, still hard to watch. But with this movie, there was a big difference. I think that the the blood was a little bit more, no pun intended, super drawn out. Ha ha, zero gravity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this, um, I really think that the point of it was to build suspense. You were terrified. You knew that pain was going to happen to the character. It was super graphic. It was ew. It was ick. There was a lot of psychological pain that was dealt out in this movie, too, which, you know, will take us to Hellraiser and back. So, yeah, I, I think it's the intent of the blood, and the intent of the blood was to freak people out in this movie. Yeah, I I think the... Yeah, I agree. The gore itself doesn't make it horror, but the intent behind the gore does. I think that's at least part of what you were saying. That is now canon. Write that down. (laughs) Yeah, same page in thinking about it, too, because there's definitely gory films. I mean, just to think of another example, right? Like that first scene, maybe it's less gory than I'm remembering, but the first scene in saving private ryan is I was just plenty gonna gory. Say, yeah you've got yeah. people looking for their legs you got people yep. getting shot in the head uh i mean there's plenty of blood and it's it's rough to watch but yeah the intent of it is obviously much different because obviously you're uncomfortable while you're watching something like that like saving private ryan it's supposed to make you uncomfortable 
but it's not supposed to make you scared necessarily. It's not wanting to put you in that position quite in the same way. At least I don't feel like it is because with this movie, they're, they're showing you that gore and they want it to maybe turn your stomach a little. They want you to have maybe a little bit of trouble watching. I think, I guess we've talked about that before of whether the intent of the filmmaker makes it horror or not, but at least when the intent is so clearly splattered all over the screen that it's a little bit hard to ignore and you have to acknowledge the fact that yeah, they're they're wanting to turn your stomach a little bit with this. They're wanting to make you uncomfortable with it. And that's at least for me. And same as obviously it sounds like for you guys as well. But uh, yeah, if the gore is meant to make you uncomfortable in that specific way, then that's a good sign that what you're watching is a horror movie. Yeah. So what else makes it horror since we all agree it is? Because I agree with the religious element that you mentioned. But I don't know that that was, I feel like that was a, it was a footnote rather than a story arc. It was something that was thrown in for familiar flavor. It's like putting ketchup on a new dish for a kid. That's what that was. Maybe it's um, engaging in a little bit of a shorthand. I mean, because you know when you're making a movie right. like this, you're making it not, especially in 97, they would have been making it for an American audience for the most part. And I'm not saying that they're mm-hmm. not wanting it to go worldwide. They're not wanting other people to see it, but they're, I think, focused more on the American market. And if you want to create a shorthand for the audience without having to describe something too deep, using religious iconography gets you there a little quicker if you're specifically playing in the Christian sandbox. So I think mm-hmm. it's easy to say, this dimension's horrible. We could tell you that, we could show you that, but we could also mention that it's hell. And if we mention right. that, you're already putting some things into it, and that right. makes it easier for it to sell. Hey, this is a scary, terrible place because mm-hmm. uh, you already have your conception of what hell is like. We all thought about whether or not we'd go there the first time we swore or, you know. Right. Damn. Fuck, right? This got deep real quick, man. I might have to get another glass of Coca-Cola for this. My goodness. I think to a degree that pulling in some of those tropes makes it horror. So pulling in hell as a trope and suggesting that to your audience, maybe trying to instill in them a real fear of this is a place you could go to. Because that's at least, yeah, it's on a spaceship yeah, they're going through black holes and yeah, it's a sort of experience no one is really going to have had watching this movie. Mm-hmm. I think anyone who's grown up in a Christian household can relate to the idea or fear of going to hell and that brings it back home in a way that you probably wouldn't have been able to if it was an alien running around the ship killing the things. Like, you can watch Alien and say, hey, that alien's killing people, but I don't connect with that. But then when you're like, these people might go to hell, then you're sitting there like, I might go to hell. I might not get there through a spaceship, but maybe that's what it's like. And maybe that's scary. And maybe it hits on something more subconscious for people than it would otherwise. Hell is real. And here's some visualizations of that. Here's some stuff to back up and enforce everything you've ever been told. Ta-da! Okay, so we've decided that blood gore, it, blood and gore makes it, and what was the second one? What did I say was canon that I forgot five minutes ago? 
Um, that's something we might have to play back. I'm not sure right offhand. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> okay, too. so we'll just put big old question mark. Okay, and we've decided that the religious ac- aspect doesn't really affect whether or not it's horror. It's just kind of a like you said, it's a touchstone. It's a hey, this is a thing that you can totally work with. So what else actually makes it horror? I think if the intent of the gore is to make it horror, I think along with that, the intent of the director making it okay. horror is a big thing too. Like the the thought behind why, why this movie is being made. Um, mm-hmm. The intent is to scare. The intent is to make you feel, you know, unsafe or unsure or whatever. I think, I guess for me, that's, I think a big thing that makes it horror. That informs a lot of the atmosphere that he's mm-hmm. dealing with in the film. Pretty much all the scenes are dark. Once you get to the event horizon, they're in the nicely lit white background meeting room on the Lewis and Clark is I think the name of their ship. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. as soon as you get to the event horizon, I don't think there's probably a white surface in the entire place as bright as it gets is that green circuit board corridor that Sam kneels in. Yeah, everything else is like almost clinically sterile and clean and yeah, I see I can see that. So we're talking aesthetic of the film. Yeah, it's definitely okay. it gets dark immediately. I mean I made this note for myself. Even space is dark and stormy. They've got like the lightning <laughs> storm going on outside the ship the whole time. And uh, I mean, that's even the reason that they pull up close. Like you easily could have had this be a uh, a movie that takes place out on the ocean and they could have been in deep yeah. fog and almost run into it. Yeah. That would have made more sense because at least then you could argue why they couldn't maybe stop. Well, it's interesting yeah. that you mentioned before that you you thought that this is like an original, like at its heart, it's a haunted house trope, right? At some points, there was almost like a, a like a The Shining vibe to certain, like even the corridor shots gave me that sensation of this weird claustrophobia and the house that you're living in is a living entity kind of thing. So the ship itself is the villain almost. I definitely agree because they go with the whole idea that yeah the ship is alive that it's reacting to them so it's 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 definitely got that shining haunted house vibe. Sorry, I had a weird ap- apostrophe moment slash epiphany moment. Like, <laughs> yeah, as uh, Steve was talking about, this could have been this could have taken place on the ocean. The. Mo- moment when the Lewis and Clark is coming up on the event horizon and all that like manufactured tension reminded me of something and I couldn't remember what until just then and it was uh it's almost shot for shot the like scene oh now I've forgotten the name of the movie the like uh the ocean scene uh the ocean movie like can see the the like front of the ship with like the skull on ghost it. ship ghost ship thank you yes oh um, my god they do like the oh. same thing and it's like a salvage ship coming up on yep. this boat and they're like it yep. should be right in yep. front of us let's right keep in front of us. plowing ahead like, uh-huh. it is like the same scene anyways <laughs> i'm checking when ghost ship was made because now i'm curious 2002 <laughs> so that's later so uh maybe ghost ship is referencing event horizon tough to say 
so many space movies take their their vocabulary and everything from naval battles that it's not that hard to see that correlation. And I definitely could see a world in which the people making Ghost Ship are riffing off of that same idea and like, oh yeah, we're watching Event Horizon, but somehow this actually makes more sense for us to do the same thing. Yeah. It's been a minute since we watched Ghost Ship, but I feel like there's maybe some other correlations there too. (laughs) All right, so yeah, we're saying gore... Definitely some of the tropes that they're using because they've got the haunted house trope there. The other thing I was thinking about too is this will have been probably a while ago at the point where anyone would listen to this, but there was a little while back, there was a lady who was reviewing movies, I think for a newspaper, but she happened to put up that Alien, the movie was not horror because it's sci-fi and that horror can't happen in space, that horror can't be science fiction. That's a load of horse shit. Yes. Elaborate. <laughs> but I wanted I to will hear you guys argue. weigh in on this. Yes, please do. But I will argue until, until I watch it again and change my mind 12 times in the course of an hour and 30 minutes. Alien is sci-fi. It's sci-fi. Ooh. Ooh, that's, that's a whole episode. Oh, oh my. Yeah. That might be a two-parter, <laughs> let's be real, because I might have the proverbial come-to-Jesus moment. We don't know. Might happen. <laughs> But as of right now, going into it, I'm tell- I'm spoiling it right now. I think it's sci-fi, but we can talk about it. Okay, well, there's but, a question. Can yeah. sci-fi be horror? Is there Are they mutually exclusive one way or the other? Where do you weigh in on that, either one of you, or all of us? Because we'll all talk about it. Well, I think I've probably said this before, but like when I'm thinking about is it horror, I think of like what are the two or three main genres that it could fall into. And I don't think sci-fi and horror are mutually exclusive i think they can coexist very easily and i think event horizon is a it's a perfect example of that and i think alien is also a perfect example of that oh i don't know about that (laughs) i i agree with the concept of sci-fi and horror not being mutually exclusive i i think that they definitely can coexist um i know that at least for me i feel like part of what makes horror horror is or at least whether or not a movie is scary to you, whether it's horror or not, ends up being relatability. The more you can put yourself in that position, the more you can see yourself there, then the more it's unnerving and unsettling. And so I think that that becomes harder with sci-fi where you're dealing with situations you might never find yourself in. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's impossible. It just puts a little bit more stress on the director to figure out how to make that story relatable to people watching it. And I think that Event Horizon manages that. Yes. It is very easy. And I agree with both of you. They are not exclusive. They combine very well. It's a peanut butter chocolate situation in a lot of time, in a lot of ways. I've seen some questionable combinations, but that's another story. But yeah, it can totally be combined. It can be amazing. We can talk about Alien. But I do agree that the Event Horizon is, I think it's a really good combination of all of the above. I would venture to say this may be my favorite go-to horror movie besides Trick or Treat. Full stop. That's saying a lot, but full stop. I do really like this movie. It's one that I keep coming back to over the years. Um, it's it's still just funny to me that the same guy did the Resident Evil movies, which I feel like, I don't know. They don't even really approach being a horror, at least as far as the Resident Evil movies go. Like, I mean, they play with those tropes and things. But so it's funny to me to have the 
the same person having directed some of those movies and to have directed this movie and it seems like that should be an easy fit like those should fit right in there but that this one fits much better Mm -hmm. but yeah i think yeah it comes down to gore and how it's used it comes down to the haunted house motif um at least for me it comes down to the shorthand of using hell as the dimension there in the background that they're dealing with the lighting scheme of the whole film i think just all of those things definitely add up to making it horror and i think if maybe you took just one of those elements and you had it in a film that wouldn't be enough but maybe the the marriage of those couple things so i'm coming more i guess to the conclusion at least with defining horror that it's not necessarily it has this one thing so yes it's more like it has these couple things these couple things paired together make it horror so in that way it's kind of like is chocolate a Reese's peanut butter cup no is peanut butter a Reese's peanut butter cup no but both of them together sure are or sure Mm -hmm. could be sure could be possibly might could do might could do now I want peanut butter cups (laughs) (laughs) who doesn't in space, can anyone get you a Reese's peanut butter cup? Well, they damn well better. Space, no one can hear you eat a peanut butter cup. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a reasonable last request before you get sucked into the airlock or whatever. Indeed, it's a good final meal. <laughs> it is. Excellent choice. So we agree that horror is a combination of elements, but we also agree that those elements are not concrete and can most times be interchangeable within a very specific multi-layered Venn diagram. Glad this got simple real quick. <laughs> yeah, it, it's that sentence started out simple and then it, <laughs> it like got complicated, but I wholeheartedly agree and I'm here for it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. We are totally writing the handbook on horror. This is great. Good, awesome. yes. I had one random question that I had written down while we were watching it. What do you guys think of, about the, like, what happened in the story here? Because, like, so at the end, the back half of the event horizon, like, gets blown away from the front half. And mm-hmm. it gets presumably sucked back to hell, right? I guess that's at least what I thought. Because, like, the thing opens up and the, like, clouds are twirling around. And it gets what I thought was pulled back to hell. That makes sense to me. Yeah, that's what I gathered. And then the front half, you know, does its thing. So, like, it was a big deal to Weir that, like, he was all upset that it was going to get blown up. But I guess, like, what's his motivation? Why does he care? He's on the half that goes back to hell. That seemed like his goal. I feel like maybe I'm just spitballing because I'm being put on the spot and sometimes I do that. But, (laughs) um... (laughs) I guess... We support that here. Okay, good. (laughs) I would say that his goal was to bring more people to the hell dimension. Once he'd been Mm -hmm. through, once he'd seen that, then his goal was, let's get more souls to hell. And you get more souls to hell with an intact ship than one that's been blown up. So I guess that would be my feeling, is that maybe that's just his upset Part of it is uh, if the ship doesn't work that well anymore, then how do I get people to hell? Yeah, and that makes sense. And I can get behind that if that's the answer. I guess like at the time when I was watching it, I was thinking to myself like the ship's going back to hell 
And is he going to be able to come back again from hell after that? I'm not sure if they say one way or another, but like for me, I guess I was kind of like, okay, is he trying to pull more people back to hell? But if that's the case, then why does the ship keep killing people? Like if they're trying to get the souls of these people. Well, it was my impression that he was upset about the ship being blown up, not only because he started to identify with the ship as a living being because it was driving him all batshit, but also that that was kind of the thing that allowed the dimensional portal to hell to even be open. So if the ship goes away, the paper folding of the porno model goes away and there's no gateway to hell. But I think that the movie has a couple problems with that because one, we know that it did go to hell. But mm-hmm. we also know that it's back. Right. And we don't have any living crew, or at least no one that were presented as living or at least recently alive, right. to have done that. But then the other thing is, Weir dies, he 100% dies, and he specifically says that the ship brought him back. So mm-hmm. is the ship interested in bodies or is it interested in souls? I assume with it being a hell dimension, it's interested in souls. So what happens to the body is inconsequential as far as it's concerned, so long as it gets the soul. I beg to differ. I think that okay. both the flesh and the soul are important because this is a harvesting vehicle that could easily go into a hellraiser dimension. And maybe folks like Weir are ensnared by whatever powers happen and in order to gain, because in, in the Hellraiser universe, in order for you to become a Cenobite, you need to make sacrifices to, I think is Leviathan, maybe? That's ringing a bell? Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway. Maybe. There's the, the Lamont configurations. I don't know if maybe that's coming to mind, but I've only seen two of them, and it's two of them, and it's been a while. Okay. Well, that's okay, because the overarching concept is you have to pay your way into Hell because we have such sites for you to see, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that if you look at this story with that understanding of a possible backstory, it totally makes sense. That they need body and soul, that they need both in order to obtain you. Correct. But then does it need that person to... Well, I mean, if it it can turn on on its own, it can conjure people back whose souls it's already claimed... So I guess in that sense, it doesn't necessarily need anyone else to get the ship anywhere, right? Because if it can just bring Weir back whenever it feels like, and it can turn on the portal on its own, then it has everything it needs to just drop itself down in the middle of the United States somewhere and suck up everybody who comes to poke around and see what the hell it's about. I don't know. I kind of felt like the ship and Weir needed each other to exist. But then he wasn't there at the beginning of the movie. Like, it does his did he in some perhaps scene that was cut in a way summon it? Is his wife dying the tragedy that activates something in his mind that brings the ship back? Possibly. Oh wow, that's a whole other episode too. <laughs> <laughs> that's just going to be a T-shirt. It's just going to say, "Oh wow, that's a whole other episode." That's it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Since we do that a lot already. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and then I guess he's got the, I forget what they call it now, the worm, whatever the worm drive is or whatever, on the back half of the ship. And I get that the ship doesn't work as it used to with the front half not working anymore. But, I mean, does the, you know, hell dimension need a functional ship to get back to this dimension? Why does the devil need a spaceship? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I would say no, because it seems like, to me, I guess I'm interpreting is that Hell seems to be able to power the ship just fine. Yeah. So I don't think that it necessarily needs a power source to continue Maybe working. Maybe they're just lazy and outsourcing. You don't know what the economy is in Hell right now. It's been a rough year. It's true. The value of hand jobs has dropped 97 dramatically. wasn't that great either. <laughs> it's so yeah, it's just it's problematic and then they don't have any eyes, so that makes it hard to watch the market. So it's just it's <laughs> it's a whole shit show. It's a whole over thing. There. <laughs> Damn it, Satan, you had one job. <laughs> All oh. you had to do was give people eyes to see. <laughs> Another random note that uh that we had talked about was like the whole thing that like everybody's confused for some reason that the captain's speaking latin right yes and then like but then they obviously knew that the captain spoke latin because it's in the like video of him taking off like (laughs) why did nobody put that together until that moment (laughs) yeah it's it's almost it reminds me of that moment in futurama if anyone watches that where the professor's like it translates everything but into some crazy (laughs) language i've never heard of it's like bonjour (laughs) crazy gibberish So, like, yeah, they see the captain speaking Latin. They have the weird message with a language they don't know. And apparently it takes, I think it was gone for seven years, I want to say. But it was like, it takes them that many years to find some random guy who's like, oh, I know Latin. It's liberate me. Just kidding. It's save yourself. And it's like, (laughs) man, you guys just, did you phone in the investigation on this one? I was like, well, it's gone. Uh, Drinks? (laughs) So would you watch a remake of this movie? And do you think it could be improved upon based on what we've we've kind of discussed here about the pros and cons, what works, what doesn't, what holds up, what makes it horror? Would you watch a remake? Yes, I would. And it almost doesn't matter what quality the remake was. I would go to the theater <laughs> I was just and I would say it. <laughs> the it second question like- was, what budget are we placing on this remake, please? Because I need to know. Like, the trailer guy could literally say in the trailer, this movie is flaming shit. And I'd be like, I'm still going, though, trailer voice. I don't know what to tell you. I'm going to be in the theater still watching it. Doesn't even matter. (laughs) But honestly, like, I don't want... I don't know that I want a remake. What I want is the extended cut that doesn't exist. And Mm. what I would settle for is a sequel that somehow brought Lawrence Fishburne back. If they can bring Sam Neill back from the dead, they can bring Lawrence Fishburne back from the dead. So there's no reason to not bring that character back. And then we haven't talked about, you know, in in Cooper that we, in Cooper we trust because Mm -hmm. that guy's like the hero of the movie. And I'd sure like to see, you know, him and Stark having settled down somewhere in the country and deciding that they were going to, you know, stay firmly on earth afterward. Yeah. Like they can have this awesome cameo. And then then Miller randomly pops out of the ethers and is like, I'm back from hell. I don't know. <laughs> I escaped hell with my soul intact. I'm still a good man. I'm here to help you. Would you like a red pill or a blue pill? Yeah. Red pill or a blue pill. Oh, that would be a whole different like Matrix reboot. Hold my bent spoon. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what the Matrix 4 is. It's tying together Event Horizon and the Matrix universe. 
This should just be Lawrence Fishburne walking out of a wormhole and handing somebody a teaspoon and being like, hold this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if if they did more, if they did a remake, if they did a sequel, if they found the, especially if they found the lost footage, I'd be here for it. Yeah. Hmm. Same. Hmm. Would you avoid any of those or you'd be into it or what? I think I'd be into it, but I think if the trailer said it was flaming shit, I'd probably be like, nah, man, I'll wait for Netflix. It's cool. But how gutsy is it for them to say that? <laughs> it really is. I mean, I really admire the chutzpah, but no. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you have to go and be like, it can't be flaming shit. They can't but tell me that in the trailer and be honest about like, it. <laughs> I mean, if if the trailer showed me multiple shots and different angles of Lawrence Fishburne's assertive Lawrence Fishburne disapproves of you face, then I would be in because the whole movie was Lawrence Fishburne being assertive and disapproving of everybody he looked at. It's true. Very true. Yeah. He was the stern father of that ship more than anything. He was. He was. He was the dad. It was great. Grumpy dad, but dad. (laughs) Or just dads, you know, because grumpy. I swear I will turn this ship around. (laughs) Unless you don't even want to go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) You act like you... (laughs) Do not make me open this portal. I swear... I will shove you out of airlock. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make me put you in the airlock, Timmy. Can't believe you made me drive you to hell. We have hell at home. You you didn't even finish the hell you had at home. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome, everyone listening. (laughs) Welcome to our podcast. Any other final thoughts on this film, on this glorious tome? (sighs) I would watch it again. Yeah, I would watch it again. Same. I'm sure I will at some point. (laughs) On our next episode, we discuss Ridley Scott's Alien. Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. Think we didn't give this movie a fair shake? Think we missed something? Do you have a suggestion for future episodes? Do you just want to say hi? You can follow me at Steve Camry on Twitter. We have a Discord server coming soon. You can also email us at isithorrorpodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is it?